Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. We're approaching Easter in the calendar. We're in the last week of the life of Jesus. And so today in Sunday school, we read the story of the triumphal entry. And then on Thursday, we come to the Passover feast that the Jews celebrate. And then the picture is the Passover lambs are being sacrificed. And Christ then in John is being sacrificed at that very hour. And so the Lord's Supper is really uh, the evening. It's the Passover and then that evening Judas betrays him. There's the arrest and then the crucifixion. Now in the first century, the early second century, the Christians called the Lord's Supper the love feast. And so in Jude 12, for example, it says these are the men who are hidden reefs. He's saying they're those who are false teachers in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. The idea in Jude is those who are unloving and it is only for themselves. They're selfish. They're misusing the Lord's Supper, the love feast. And it is to be a time of self-giving love. That's the picture in this, or originally a meal, in which the bread and the cup and the context of a meal, a festive meal, by the way, it was a joyous occasion. But of course, the bread and the cup became separated from the meal. Why this happened is not exactly clear, but it was very early. Some scholars have argued that the Christians dropped the meal because they wanted to keep the Eucharist, and Eucharist just means thanksgiving. They wanted to keep it from being profaned by participation of unbelievers. Maybe it's there's a growing influence of pagan religious ritual, and it became more of a religious ritual. By the fourth century, the love feast was prohibited by the church. It was prohibited by the Council of Carthage in AD 397. And I'm afraid that what happened with this shift in meaning, you know, that first of all it was a meal and then it gets reduced and then it's actually changed up by the church. I'm afraid that we've obscured the meaning. And so that's what I want to bring out today is to get at the original meaning of the Passover as Jesus celebrated it, and then as we are to celebrate it, the the communion. Jesus says, whenever you do it, do it in my memory. Well, do what in his memory? It cannot mean that whenever you celebrate the Mass, Jesus didn't mean that, because there was no such thing as a Mass. He might mean whenever you celebrate the Passover, But that isn't really what his hearers come to mean either because that would have been an annual celebration. And we see the first Christians celebrating it every time they get together. He must have meant, and the record indicates this is the way the Christians took him to mean it, that whenever you have your common meal, that whenever you come together as a group. 
And the meal he blessed and claimed as his memorial, it was just their partaking together of food for the body. And of course the idea, the body, uh, the body of Christ enters in. And only because it was that communal meal of the disciples' fellowship could it provide the occasion. You know, we see this in Acts. That some of the widows, actually the non-Hebrew speaking widows, they were Jewish, they felt they were getting left out. They weren't getting their fair share of the bread. And so they appoint deacons. That's why we have, you know, people distribute it. I think we all got an equal amount today. But we may still have to eat lunch. <laughs> all of the later controversies that were going to arise, that is just not there in the apostolic generation. They had no notion that it's going to become to call a sacrament and that only particular people can constitute it a sacrament. And so what I want to do, go, let's look at 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 29. And this is Paul's explanation of the significance of this meal. And I'm not saying I'm covering everything this morning, but this is certainly the way that Paul wants to explain. He's saying he wants them to be ethical. And he uses the meal as a means to explaining this ethics. So let's read together 1123 to 29. For I have received of the Lord that which I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup. When he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as often as ye drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, you show the Lord's death till he comes. Paul seems to be repeating a formula, an understanding that was there in the Gospels. And then verse 27 Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. If you come with the wrong attitude, it's not the Lord's Supper. Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Where's the Lord's body? Well, the problem in the church of Corinth is they're not recognizing fellow members, that some people are lording it over others. Some people are going ahead and having a feast, and some people come and they just have a little cracker. That is, there's an, an inequality. And the picture here, certainly the church is not the authority that sacrifices Christ as we'll get in the Mass. And the meal or the Lord's Supper, in fact, is exactly the opposite of this. It's the Lord's table, right? He's the host of the Supper. The whole problem of sin, as we've talked, is 
the refusal of sacrificial love. What is being celebrated in the Lord's Supper is the embrace of the love of Jesus, the sacrificial love of Jesus, and by partaking of the supper, we're taking up that sacrificial love. That is, we're doing what Jesus did. That's the picture. Through his humanity, then, we participate. Now, this is both baptism. You die to one system of life, to yourself, to an orientation, and you're raised again, and you walk in newness of life. Communion is a kind of repetition of the same idea. This is my body which is for you, Jesus says. It indicates at a minimum group solidarity. There's a fellowship. At a deeper level, we recognize there's an organic oneness. He's constituting a new family called the body of Christ. It is moral and ethical aimed at the shaping of the common life of the Christian community. The meal is part and parcel of the practice of maintaining, establishing and maintaining this community. This is what we're here for. This is the ethic that we practice. The rules of the meal link the conduct of participants to their participation in the meal. The manner of eating is the manner of participation. You know, if you do this wrong, Paul says, you void the meaning. It's not the Lord's Supper that you're celebrating. All who partake are to lay down and sacrifice their lives in love for one another. If when you assemble you ignore one another, Paul says, each going ahead with their own meal, some hungry, others overindulging, some getting drunk on the wine, then the meal you have just eaten, he says, that's not the Lord's Supper. And so the point of the meal is an ethic. The point of the meal is solidarity in the kingdom. The breaking of bread is believers actually sharing. I mean, it's literally an economic thing in the first century. The eating is not just eating together. It's hospitality, it's community. But you understand it's more than that. It's enacting a new community. Bread eaten together, certainly it's economic sharing, not merely symbolically, but in actual fact, it extends. You know, who do you eat with? Well, you eat with your family, right? And here we got together and we had a family meal. That was the idea originally. It's a solidarity of the family. And this is certainly in the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. They're going to do this. They're going to eat together. He's going to distribute bread and fish around the table and he is the head of the table. He projects into this post-passion world the common purse. You know, they're going to share economically. They're going to share as a family. And so when the family head feeds you at his or her table, the bread for which he gives thanks, if you partake of that bread, you're part of the family. The act does not merely mean that you symbolically are part of the family. It is an incorporating into family life, right? This, is a, this may sound a technical detail here, but the point is that this very act, you know, when you get married and, and the marriage you say, I do, you understand that's not a symbol of marriage. You just got married when you said, I do. Same thing with the Lord's Supper. When you partake, the sign and the thing that it signifies are there. They're one thing. You're part of the group. 
To be immersed, you know, same thing in baptism, to be immersed and to rise from the water, we might talk about it as a sign, but it's not simply a sign. No, you just did it. You just literally became a member of the body of Christ. And so what the sign and the signified, they're tied together. The eating together, that is joining the new family. And in this family, things are different. Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, the whole world is made new. So that the worldly standards, this is actually 2 Corinthians 5, have ceased to count. We no longer do things by the world. Social definitions based upon class and category. Now that's the problem in the Corinth church. There's the very wealthy and there's the very poor. And the very wealthy are taking advantage of the poor. The way he's going to describe this to the Galatians is there is no slave nor free in Christ. There is no male nor female. There is no Jew and Gentile. There is no class difference. There is no hierarchical difference. You are one in Christ Jesus. That's the practice here. It's explicitly a description of what baptism does, and I think the Lord's Supper, it's a new humanity. And here is this new humanity practicing this new ethic. In key passages of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus tells his disciple that you will bind and loose. You know, what you bind on earth is bound in heaven. What you lose, who you forgive will be forgiven. I believe that we're practicing binding and loosing. That is, this is an act of forgiveness. This is an act of reconciliation, enacting togetherness, community on a different basis. This is simultaneously spiritual. We don't want to remove that. But the spiritual cannot be separated from the ethical. The fellowship of the meal, the, the koinonia, is primary. And of course, not what is eaten, not whose house it's in, not the manner of eating or how you eat. But what you discern, you know, the judgments made and not the recipe or makeup of what is consumed. That is, we recognize the body of Christ. Where do we recognize the body of Christ? It's here. Here is the body of Christ. To discern the body is to live gently. It's to live lovingly. It's to live generously. Paul will do a similar thing in Romans with baptism that he does in Corinthians with the Lord's Supper. He says, now you've been baptized in Christ. You've died and you've been raised. Now act like it. Do it. In other words, our discussion, faith apart. No, there is no faith apart from works. Because you are in the body of Christ, enact the ethic of Christ. Live it out. And the supper itself, uh, you know, it's not about that Jesus is ingested. The supper is not a, a literal consumption of blood and body in that sense. But the meal enacts the reality of the presence of Christ. To state it in a, in a different way, the meal, we can say, is the experience of atonement, right? What is the word atonement? At-one-ment. We are at one. We're reconciled. It's not a sign of something else, but it is that. It's not an incantation of something else, but through the koinonia, the fellowship, the supper, a new community is founded. It's a reality we experience together. Is it spiritual? Certainly it's spiritual. 
But spiritual here means life together with God and with one another. Just as death is the opposite of that. Death is not just an event at the end of life, but it describes a separation, an alienation. And so it is a meal at which Christ is the host. You know, this is the famous words of the leader of the Restoration Movement, Alexander Campbell. He says, it is not ours to invite. We didn't send out an invitation because everybody's invited. And it's not ours to debar. We can't say, oh, sorry, not you. Because it's not our supper. It's the Lord's supper. There is no notion, you know, that we need a priest to in some way consecrate it like a mediator. No, Christ is the mediator. The development in the medieval period, and that's the problem, of course, that one of the bloodiest periods in church history, ironically, between Protestants and Catholics, guess what they're fighting over? The meaning of communion. They're killing one another over the meaning of the love feast. I think they missed the point. So whatever we do, I think it is this enactment of love. Both sides are willing to kill, literally, who they consider heretics. They, that already tells us, oh, they got it wrong. They're mistaken. Whatever you believe about it, you got it wrong. You don't kill for the love feast. And the meal is precisely then the institution of a loving practice. And so what all failed to do was to join faith and practice as containing the essence of Christianity as portrayed in the Lord's Supper. Here, faith and practice come together. In the early centuries, it was true that some people hosted the church in their house. They were house churches, and they were probably nice houses. But just because you host the meal, Paul says, that doesn't mean you can tell the poor, oh, well, you go back in the servants' quarters and eat the Lord's Supper back there with the servants. There is no host other than Jesus. And so this sort of division that was occurring, Paul says, you're not practicing the Lord's Supper. And the notion that priestly mediators stand at the top of a hierarchical chain through which Jesus is mediated I think it just is over and against Paul's point here. It is precisely against those in the Corinthian church who would divide themselves according to some hierarchy. Paul says if you do that, it's not the Lord's Supper. The schisms or divisions are undermining the very focus and purpose of this meal. If you cannot do it in love, then you're not doing it. Now Paul says in this same passage, he said, I know dissensions may be unavoidable. Maybe he's quoting them. I don't know. Perhaps because of the way in which the Lord's Supper was conducted, maybe there's going to be complaints. Maybe the poor, they've been treated poorly, or they think they've been treated poorly. But Paul says this, he says, Do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. So then, my brothers, when you come together, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, well, eat it whole. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. That is, in this unloving, you know, selfish way you're doing this, you're creating dissension. And some are made to feel like second-class Christians. There is no such thing as a hierarchy. That's what Paul is saying. 
maker. You know, obviously the clergy laity distinction that will arise, and it arises around the Lord's Supper. Who gets to hand out the supper? Who gets to consecrate it? Who gets to institute it? Very much like an early patron might imagine he is the host. He's in control. And the idea that the priest is again offering Christ as a sacrifice and that the mass was both a sacrament and sacrifice. This innovation that Luther and the reformers, they're going to reject that in Roman Catholicism and they want to amend it. And Luther points out the notion that the mass is a good work, a sacrifice. He says has brought in its train innumerable other abuses. He says it turns the holy sacrament into mere merchandise and the whole income of priests and monks depending on it. I think he's right, but the problem is he is not completely right because he too then is going to misunderstand the meal. Paul might say, well then, it's still not the Lord's Supper that you're celebrating. If there's any hierarchy, if there's any kind of division, those who hosted the Lord's Supper in Corinth, they might argue that they followed the dining conventions of upper middle class Roman society. This is the way we do it in Rome. But Paul sees this as overturning convention. It's not simply a meal hosted by a wealthy Christian, it's a meal hosted by Christ. And to put to shame those who have nothing is to miss the point of the tradition which Paul is passing on from Christ. So Jesus performed the Passover Thursday evening before he dies. He gives thanks. And just as the Passover, what is it? It's a reliving of the drama of the Exodus in which they recite and celebrate God's saving acts, bringing them out of Egypt. Well, we're enslaved too, and we need to recognize what enslaves us. And Christ's death is understood to initiate a covenant which changes up human relationships and even what it means to be human. And we recognize the body, we discern the community, and we declare then we're a new kind of humanity based upon this. And so those who eat and drink, Paul declares in a selfish way, you're actually, you're gathering up guilt for yourself. The problem is not some sort of desecration of the symbols, but rather the offense of an unloving attitude by mistreating other members of the church. The Corinthians actually repeat the sort of sin which killed Christ in the first place. This is in Hebrews. Those who continue to sin are crucifying again the Son of God. They're holding him up to contempt. They're bringing judgment on themselves. So, the communion. It's an act of atonement. Here is what the meaning of Christ is. We're being made one. The Father and Son are united in the work of Christ, defeating evil, death, the devil, and participating in communion, being communal, being in koinonia, that is the defeat of the devil. The Lord's Supper celebrates. It reenacts defeat of the death resistance, the division which killed him. And so we're not killing Christ again. We're celebrating the defeat of the forces which killed him. We are celebrating the, the defeat of this power that is death dealing. The dividing power, the violent power, the ethnic power, the religious power, the national power that killed him. And which would divide us 
unless we recognize it's defeated in Christ. It is a defeat of ethnocentrism. No Jew, no Gentile. It's a defeat of egocentrism. I have been crucified with Christ. It's a defeat of sexism. There is no male or female. It's a defeat of class difference. There is no slave and free. All forms of evil that would deal out selfishness, violence, and death, these are undone. It is an overcoming of the alienation that would make table fellowship possible. We come together and we celebrate the defeat of those powers. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.